Welcome to episode two of season two of the OrthoPlug podcast, the show where we speak with some of the most inspiring orthopedic surgeons who either come from underrepresented backgrounds or are actively supporting those that do. This is a fantastic episode with Dr. Patrick England, who at the time of recording this was just graduating medical school, but is now an intern at Northwestern. In this episode, he describes where his inspiration came from. You know, being biracial, my dad's side, they were really the only black surgeons and black academic, you know, clinicians that I knew. He brings tons of clarity to what research years look like. You don't necessarily have to go into the year like, oh, I need, you know, 10 publications, 15 publications. But I think you have to have the hunger and organizational skills to be like, I need to get as much done as possible. He describes how to plan your sub eyes. No matter where you go, it's a hard month. Like you're going to be working hard. You're going to be grinding. So you got to know yourself. And he touches on his experience doing all of this while being the father of twins. Starting a family, like it's just such a different experience. And like, you just have to change your expectations. And so I became much more deliberate with the time that I had. Before we dive into the episode, I have one favor to ask. The best thing that you can do to support the podcast is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. By doing so, you'll be helping the podcast grow and directly contributing to my ability to bring more guests on, continue to improve production value, and just ultimately make the show better for you. All right, let's hop in. Oh, man, I am super excited for this one. Um, we have a close friend, someone I look up to a ton. Um, an absolute boss, absolutely crushed med school, is now doing his thing. Recently matched at Northwestern, Patrick England. I'm like very close to saying like Dr. England um, because we're about like a month and a half out. Uh, but thank you so much for joining the show. I am so grateful to be here, JR. Just uh, glad to be here. You've had an unbelievable lineup. So just grateful to be amongst those, amongst Dude. them and to impart any wisdom I can. You are an absolute legend, so I am honored to be able to have you join this lineup. Um, you know, I, I love the, the background that we have going on. I should have recorded mine from the baby's room, but we're currently <laughs> fitting Kari down. But I love that you're recording this from the baby's room. Um, Peter Rabbit our, out here, man. Yes, I absolutely <laughs> love it. For our listeners who don't know, Pat uh, has twins. And so he's currently a fourth year med student at WashU and has gone through the uh, fourth year of medical school with twins, now seven month old twins. And so we're definitely going to dive into kind of what life has been like with that, what med school is like with that, how you're planning on residency with that, because I selfishly want to know because of my own child. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just wanted to say I love the background. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So I usually like to like start the podcast just with a little bit of insight into, you know, how we got to medicine and ultimately the interest um, in orthopedics. So can you just bring us back to where all of that started? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it actually is all related to my family. So my immediate family isn't involved in medicine at all, but my extended family is. So I have um, an aunt who has, you know, a research lab and then two uncles who are um, both surgeon, one actually being a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And so from a super young age, I would always see them at like Christmas, Easter, kind of all of those family events talking about you know, their experiences in medicine. And I just loved it. And so I was like, you know what, I want to be exactly like my uncle. And so they were really the, the big inspiration. Um, and one of the things that was interesting was they, um, you know, you know, being biracial, my dad's side, they were really the only black surgeons and black academic, you know, clinicians that I knew um, up until I was, 
in college. So I think that um, representation was really important too. Absolutely. So was your uncle on your dad's side, so is he a black pediatric orthopedic surgeon? Yep. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think one of the main things that like I found is either like a barrier or like a motivating force is like if you actually see that representation for you to actually get that relatively young. Um, are you like still in contact with your uncle? Do you still like communicate with him? Does he know what you're doing? All that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. So I've been, you know, talking with him every step of the way. Thankfully, he was, um, you know, very supportive the entire way, but he was very hands off. So he would always just say, you know, how's college going? How's med school going? How's, you know, applications going? Um, but he was very much like, you know, orthopedics is the best field. You're making a great decision. And um, I got to shadow him from early on. So really having that support and encouragement was awesome. And, you know, one of very few black orthopedic surgeons was awesome too, just because of, you know, he knows the game. He knows what it's been like to be the only person in the room. So just wanted to to be like him. Yeah, that's super powerful. I'm really happy that you have that kind of role model, like somebody who can kind of share their experiences in totality with you. Because sometimes I think it can be challenging. You know, you can find a mentor who, you know, may look like you and, and have similar experiences like you, which is absolutely fantastic. But to have that within your family is like a different level because it's like a different kind of level of closeness that you kind of have with that person. Um, so that's absolutely fantastic. I also know that you you played basketball, right? And you are on Carlton's basketball team um, with one of our yes. close friends, Quinn. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, at first when I was looking at, you know, doing my research on you and kind of being nosy on Google, <laughs> um, I was like, oh, let's go. Carlton basketball. I didn't know. I knew that you went to Carlton. I didn't know that you were like two-time captain of the basketball team. So getting buckets, <laughs> let's go. Um, and I was almost expecting the kind of classic, like, previous collegiate athlete gets hurt, goes into orthopedics, but that's not necessarily your story, right? It's a, there were two separate kind of things. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, the athletics was a huge influence as well. And, you know, basketball for me was always the platform to help aside from, you know, my passion for the actual game was just like a platform to mentor, you know? So I worked a lot of times in, you know, basketball camps, talking with kids. I was like, listen, you know, things, you know, basketball, academic success, they aren't always mutually exclusive. And so for me, kind of taking that to the next level, getting to, you know, do orthopedics and still call upon that basketball history is definitely something that I'm excited to do and uh, proud of. So. Oh, that's awesome. I do have to ask selfishly, how was Quinn? Are, are, were you and Quinn the same? You were, you were older, right? <laughs> so, so crazy story. I actually rec- helped recruit Quinn he was a freshman when I was a senior. So during his like prospective students, I was like, all right, we got to get this kid coming, coming here. And so tried to, tried to show him a good time and what Carlton was about. And, uh, you know, he paid it back by letting me crash on his couch during my away at, at Mayo. So it always uh, comes full <laughs> circle. <laughs> I love it. That is fantastic. Absolutely love the story. Um, Mm-hmm. So you you briefly mentioned, you know, like mentorship is something that you've always been very passionate about. Um, you know, you translated that into how you mentored people in basketball. I'm sure you've given Quinn a lot of mentorship. You've given me a lot of mentorship, you know, just in our own one-on-one time. Um, were you able to kind of get involved in any other forms of mentorship as a medical student? Because I know I think a lot of medical students have similar kind of 
hopefully have similar desires to kind of pay things forward. And we know that like in this hierarchical system, being able to have mentors is critical. And then a lot of people want to be able to pay that forward. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, it's clearly a passion of yours. Were you able to kind of either formally or informally find ways to do that as a medical student? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so I got involved in SNMA. And so I was on the executive board at WashU and was their the program director. And so one of the kind of big mentorship things we did was worked with a charter school and created this longitudinal mentorship program. And I think the reason why I was so passionate and what, you know, why I'm still so passionate is it's, you know, going into medicine and into residency, it's almost like there's a secret code that like, if you don't know or don't have people um, kind of like you tell you what it is, you have no idea really how to get there. And so for me, it's, you know, working with high school students and undergrads to say, all right, you know, this is how you get to that next level. Here are the things that I didn't know or wish I'd known when I was your age. So um, yeah, I was super interested in that and being able to work on this like longitudinal mentorship program was something that I, you know, love doing and hope to continue kind of moving forward throughout my career. Yeah, that's awesome. I am sure that every, you know, student that you talked to was deeply touched because our conversations, I'm like, this dude, thank God he's willing to be on this platform here because he spits <laughs> words of wisdom just nonstop and super helpful. Um, and I know that you're going to continue to do, to do that throughout your career. I can, I, you, you say it a lot, but you also like walk the talk of, you know, you pay things forward a lot. So, um, you know, I appreciate it. I'm sure everybody listening appreciates it and, and the, the people in the charter school at the SNMA thing that you did as well. I'm sure appreciate it. Um, were you involved in any other kind of things in medical school outside of like the SNMA? And um, I think, you know, especially with step one being pass fail, we kind of have to start to build this holistic application and find things that, you know, most importantly, we're passionate about doing, but, you know, things that can potentially bolster our um, application. So what, what other things were you involved in in medical school? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think especially key to orthopedics, like I think research is one of those kind of key things that is important to, you know, be involved in. And so for me, I knew I wanted to go into orthopedics and I knew it was competitive. So I was like, all right, let's get um, kind of started on research early on. Um, and so I worked with uh, Dr. Cipriano, who is like an orthopedic oncology um, surgeon. And for me, and kind of one of the biggest pieces of advice I have is really picking the mentor and not the project. Because, you know, there are a lot of schools that you'll get like an email blast of, here's a project to do and you can do that, which, you know, that's a great way to add extra things. But I think by picking that mentor, it allows for such better um, kind of throughput on what you do as well as, um, uh, you know, just being productive and getting advice. And so research was kind of the other um, kind of core component. And I ended yeah. up taking a research year, which we can talk about if you want, but, um, I think, yeah, moving forward, uh, I think continuing to do that is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely do want to touch on the research too, because I think I'm hearing more and more from, you know, all the events that we go to or program directors are speaking and chairs at programs and things. And they really seem to emphasize that, you know, with less objective things, like a step score, step one score or whatever, even though step two is now important, but research seems to be kind of a common theme that is, is, is important. 
And I think for a lot of students, you know, it's a means to an end kind of thing. Some students are, you know, intrinsically passionate about research. Um, but for a lot of oh. students, it's kind of like a means to an end. Um, and just knowing how to get involved, all of those kind of things are very helpful. And I definitely want to touch on your research year because you did a research year at CHOP, um, the, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is just like massive. And now knowing who your uncle is, like a pediatri pediatrics orthopedic <laughs> surgeon, now it all is kind of coming together here. Um, but that mm -hmm. that is absolutely fantastic. So um, you mentioned that you were able to like already get involved in research early on in medical school. And, you know, you go to Wash U, which is an, you know, incredible program with tons of access to resources and things like that. Um, and so I think, you know, I know a lot of students are not pursuing research years, um, but I know for some students who may go to programs who don't have or schools that don't have a home program, for example, it can be so much harder to get actual involved in research at your home institution. So like research years are even maybe more mm -hmm. important for them. But for you with so many mm -hmm. resources at home, what made you still want to take that additional year um, to kind of do research? What went into that decision? Yeah, I think it was kind of multifaceted, but it was it was very serendipitous. Like we got this email blast when I was a second year med student about this pro about the Ben Fox Fellowship or this research year at CHOP, and I was like, "Man, Peds Ortho! Like I want to do Peds Ortho. This sounds cool." And at the time, I didn't realize research years were as big as they were, or like you know as common as they were. So I had no idea, and I looked into it and went on the website, and I was like. Well, I can't apply for another year, but this sounds like an awesome opportunity, like living in Philly for a year. Um, I'd love this. And I think the reason why I ended up, you know, going through with it and was lucky enough to kind of do this research year was um, one, I really wanted to expand my network outside of kind of what I currently had. Like WashU was an amazing place, really helped me get established. But going to school at Carl West, I really wanted to branch out to show east coast schools like hey i'm also interested in the east coast would be willing to come here um and so that was kind of one reason and the second was this research program was unique in that it worked with everybody in the department so i could do tons of different subspecialty research in peds ortho so it wasn't just spine it wasn't sports it was really everything so um, getting to see how the different types of research played out within peds ortho was um, something that I really appreciated. That's awesome. That sounds like a fantastic experience. And, and I love how, you know, sometimes the most like fulfilling experiences are, you know, how you described it as those serendipitous kind of like, you just get an email and it is just like, oh, this is actually almost perfect. Like, you know, let's send it and you send yep. it and it ends up being one of the more <laughs> kind of like fulfilling things that you do. Um, that's absolutely, that's, Very that's much. amazing. Um, and, you know, now that more people are pursuing these research years, um, you know, I hear, you know, that some people can go into them with a preconceived notion that it's going to be more relatively chill or things like that. And I've heard that it's not necessarily that ca the case. I'm sure it, there's variability depending on who you're working with and where you're at. Um, mm -hmm. But can you describe how your experience was doing your research year? And then just any like general advice that you have for, you know, other students when they're actually doing the research year? Right. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I realized is you have to come into the research year hungry. Um, 
And I know you talked about on one of your previous podcasts, like got to eat your pancakes every day. You got to do the work. And the research year is very much like that of you don't necessarily have to go into the year like, oh, I need, you know, 10 publications, 15 publications. But I think you have to have the hunger and uh, kind of organizational skills to be like, I need to get as much done as possible. And I think it really varies based on the type of research program you do because there's so many different you know, there's named ones, there's ones that are just with one person. Um, but then being um, proactive so that when you get there, you can really hit the ground running. Um, so, but it's, it's tough research years. They go by much faster than you think. And like at the end they are productive, but you know, today I was already work or I was still working on a project from before. So, you know, good research takes time. So, um, you have to be, be patient as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. I think like, I, I love the reference, um, to, to Abe, Abe's, uh, e- eating the pancakes. You always just got to eat your pancakes. Otherwise they pat, st- uh, stack on top <laughs> of each other. And you know, before you know it, you can't actually finish the plate. Yes. So you got to eat them before they keep stacking. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I think that's a great way of mm-hmm. approach of, you know, research. It's just kind of like the day in and day out, you know, commitment to chipping away on these projects is what ultimately leads to that productive year because it needs to be a productive one if you're going to do one. Um, and then, yeah, being Absolutely. patient, I think, is huge too. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think for a lot of people now, it's such a kind of knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, I need to do a research year. And that is definitely not the case. I think it can hurt you if, you know, you do a research year and you aren't productive um, or don't get a lot done especially in ortho. Um, so really understanding of like what the research year entails, what the expectations are from wherever you're going, because, you know, while it is a great year, I think not, not everyone has to necessarily do one. Right. Right. Yeah. Very true. And I, I think that that's very helpful too, because, uh, you can fall into the the trap of trends, right. And like, we're in a season right now where it's like everybody's yep. just sending research years and stuff. And you have to just, you know, know yourself, know your application, know your personal interest. Like you were part, you were like genuinely right. interested about this experience. And so you went there and crushed it. But mm-hmm. I know some people may just say, you know, everybody's doing it. I hate research. I don't want to do this at all. But, and then, like you said, it can end up biting you in the butt. Um, Cause it mm-hmm. turns into an unproductive time and you hate your life. So it's almost like <laughs> lose, lose. <laughs> Yep, exactly. Exactly. So you put together an absolutely fantastic um, application. You have incredible research. Um, you did your mentorship was one of your more personally fulfilling experiences that, that you did in medical school. And I know one of the other main components of being a successful orthopedic surgery applicant is performing on your away rotations. So, you know, I'd love to hear, um, you know, any advice that you have about first, I would, I'd love to hear advice about how you went to, you know, choose the places that you rotated at. If you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily have to, you know, name drop where you rotated or whatever, but just like what went into your mind when you were kind of going through that process. And then when you're actually on those rotations, what were some of the things that you think made you excel? Because I know personally that you did excel on your away rotations. Um, you know, (laughs) I have heard very great things about Pat, the rotator. So I would love to hear, you know, how you approach those. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's an excellent question. So I think the 
thought process behind picking where I wanted to go um, is kind of one of the core ideas of, you know, for all third, fourth year med students is being very introspective of being like, because I'm very much a bloomer planted person. So I like interviewed at so like X amount of places and was just like, man, I'd love to come here. I'd, you know, I've heard great things about this. And so for me, I was like, okay, I'm going to have a kid. I didn't know at the time it was going to be twins. And I wanted to be near family at a, you know, strong program that had potentially peds and was well balanced. Um, And so for me, uh, Mayo and Northwestern were kind of the two that really fit the mold for, for me. And I think going in before I even wrote or like thought about applying there, I actually reached out to residents just to kind of see what they were like here, kind of their stories and experience. And at both places, I was like, man, I love these people. Like these are awesome people I'd love to spend my time with. I can't wait to get to know them. Um, And so I think really just being introspective of saying, all right, what are the things that I need? Do I need an academic program? Do I, well, that has a lot of research. Do I need a place that's close to family Um, or kind of the other things like whatever your core driver is? I think that's important to, to pick because there, you know, there isn't one best program. Um, You got to go where you're the best fit. So, Mm -hmm. and and clout can be a reason you can say, you know what? I want to go here because I want the clout and I want the name and what comes with that. Like that is also very important. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say like, I, um, have heard more and more that some people will pursue programs, you know, for like, you have the initial, if somebody says like, I'm going to this program because of the name, like your initial reaction may just be like, it's a superficial kind of thing. But then when you think long-term with like fellowship matches and job prospects, it's still ultimately the same thing that you're talking about with like knowing what you want uh, for yourself. And if you want to be in a certain place in the long run that requires those names, you know, it's just something that, like you said, you have to be introspective about and uh, and understand about yourself and then you can, you know, go for that. But I I, I love that you pointed it out because I think that some people can hear that and, you know, think of it as like a superficial kind of thing, but it's, it is just more of the same introspection that you're mentioning. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah. And then, you know, was lucky enough to um, get accepted to the, the places that I went. And so I was unique because my research year ended in June. I didn't really have the time to do multiple, but I think now kind of as signaling in a way rotations get more important, you know, people may do two, three, four, five. I just think the the key thing that people need to realize is like, no matter where you go, it's a hard month. Like you're going to be working hard. You're going to be grinding. So you got to know yourself. Like, is it in my best interest to do four in a row back to back to back to back and have, you know, the one that I really want to go to as my fourth. So like being very strategic on how you build your year is also really important and a key to success. So you can stay, you know, fresh and, you know, come energetic. Oh, that, that brings up a, a massive point because one of our personal phone calls um, where you were providing some wisdom to me individually was basically going through your strategy for kind of, you know, walking through from your basically fourth year of medical school. Um, and like you said, like you don't want to be, you know, 
the main place that you want to go to when you have zero left in the tank. Um, and so like, what, can you just walk us through kind of how you structured your fourth year? Um, some things that you were considering when doing so, and just kind of how you put together, uh, kind of that plan for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be at a place that had a really good home program and that uh, the home program was really focused on creating you to be a good rotator elsewhere. And so for me, I said, okay, I got to at least do one home before I go somewhere else. And so I specifically did peds ortho because I had the whole year doing peds ortho research. So, you know, if you're doing a research year in recon, it may not hurt to, you know, do joints and recon on your first rotation back just because your knowledge base is so much higher. And so then I did that. Then I went to Mayo for my second month. And then I did a um, kind of a research block and then did Northwestern and then my last home. And I would say finishing, like, if I would have done it over, I probably would have done home, home, away, away. I just didn't have that option. Right. But getting right. those breaks, yeah, I, I think, think it makes so important. much sense. Yeah. No, I think, I think it makes so much sense to like, make sure you start off with your home rotation. I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. That's like a good general piece of advice. Um, because like your home has your best intentions kind of naturally, like you don't have to try to come in and necessarily, I mean, you still want to prove yourself as a, you know, a strong applicant, especially if you're interested in your home program, but I don't know. There's, it seems like there's like a different level of, um, like the, the, the eyes aren't on you to wait for you to mess up as much as like help build you into something that when you leave, you can, you know, show good for yourself and then for the home, your institution as well. So more of like a building experience, um, with a little less stress. And then I, I like how you also, you, you had some time in between your home and then Mayo, and then you had, some research time where you're able to kind of maybe recharge the batteries from at least maybe working like a hundred hours or whatever you were doing on those <laughs> rotations, uh, to be able to recharge the batteries before you come back and then you do your second home rotation. Um, that, that, that sounds like a really, really solid plan. Um, and when you were doing your rotations, what were some of the things you mentioned one, I think a uh, thing that seems like it would be very helpful, which was like you reached out to the residents ahead of time to kind of one build, the like relationship with them. Um, and then two, I'm sure, you know, just like being able to ask them directly what they want, what they're looking for, what their expectations are, how you can fulfill those or anybody else in the department, um, is, is very helpful. Um, it sounds like that, that would be very helpful. What else did you do to kind of like make the most out of your away rotations and even your home rotation since you ended up doing two of those? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, the key, and a lot of people have already talked about this, is like you can't, no matter the rest of the advice that I give is dependent on you at first being a good person. Like all the other advice doesn't matter if you're, you know, the annoying gunner, all those things. So that's just goes without being said. But I think some of the things that people can do um, that really helps um, is at first always get the low hanging fruit and work smarter, not harder. So what I mean by that of getting the low hanging fruit, there's simple things that you can always be doing every day that'll, that'll help you out. So for me, that was always having trauma shears on me in clinic, on call, everything. So that way, when you're like breaking down a splint, when you're doing dressing changes, whatever, 
it was always there. So there was no hesitation or thought of being like, oh, well, they're always going to have it. They're always prepared. Um, and another was when I was on call, I always saw that zero form was something that took forever to get because it was just like wasn't stocked, wasn't in places. And so I always carried like harder to get items with me to minimize the wait times. And so zero form was just kind of an example of that. Um, but more like big picture, I think for me, it was always carrying a notebook and having something to read. So I had like, you know, like a little pocket notebook for when I was on call. And even when I would prep for cases, I would do all of my prep in that notebook. And so then before a case started, I could go to the resident and be like, Hey, I just had a quick question about the approach and would show them, um, kind of like the studying that I had done. So they knew they're like, Oh, you know, he's putting in the work, but I didn't, you know, it's a fine line of being like, look how much I studied here, are all the pages in my notebook. Like, you know, you gotta be, be subtle with it. Um, and then connecting with the residents, like you had talked about, and then never getting the same question wrong twice. So you can get a question wrong, totally okay. But if you get it wrong twice, then people will think, oh, he's not paying attention or, you know, she's not focused. So I think those are kind of the the low hanging fruit that I was always like, hey, I got to have this, have this prepared. I love that. That's That's super helpful. I love the idea of having like a pocket notebook too, like like with you where the night before where you're prepping for cases, was it something where you would just kind of go through Hoppenfelds and look through what the approach would be for whatever, write that down? Is that kind of how, how you went about it? Exactly. So like I'm a very visual learner, so I would actually draw out like the approach or like key anatomic structures that are either like to avoid or whatever. And it just gave me a better kind of feel and vision for like what I was about to see, um, tomorrow. Oh, that's the, you fantastic. Know, right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's awesome. I'm definitely going to be doing that now. That's, that's a great piece of advice. Cause I'm also like a visual learner too. And it is one of those things where it's like, you can't like walk in with like a Hoppinsfield textbook. Like when you're just, you know, sitting outside the OR or like, <laughs> you also don't really want to be like on your phone if you have like the PDF versions. Cause then it kind of looks maybe suspect. Exactly. I was always, so I actually never was on my phone ever on my, the rotations just because I was always like, they're going to think he's on TikTok, on Instagram or whatever. And, yep. you know, I had friends that, um, you know, were on their phone and it was completely fine, but I was always, you know, I think it's important to be thoughtful about, you know, what people are seeing you do. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge point. We have a um, uh, one of he, he's our old program director before Barlow, um, Dr. Turner. He gave a presentation for us here at Mayo and basically said, whenever I see a student on their phone, I assume that they're texting, regardless of if they're looking on the PDF version of Netter's Anatomy or something like that. I just assume they're texting. And he gave the thing of like, I'm an old head, so I don't, you know, whatever kind of thing. And, you know, some people, some more junior, you know, consultants and stuff may be fine with it, but some of these, some people may not, and you don't want to no, take true, that gamble. Man. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so, really true. So I actually just kept yeah. pocket pimped in my back pocket, pocket pimped. And then the anatomy stuff was drawn out in my notebook. I love that. That's, that's awesome. Okay. Definitely doing that. Um, 
So you went through, crushed your your rotations, and then now you're applying. And you know it's September, October ish. We're getting ready to send these applications in. Um, one thing that was unique with your class is you guys were like the guinea pigs with uh, signaling, basically. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what your experience with signaling was, um, how you approached signaling. I think you can even like signal regions, how you approached that. Um, because I think that a lot of people are kind of, you know, I'm sure data will come out soon with how in, in general things went, but I love to get your experience on that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, in terms of regions, I was actually specifically told like signal, no preference for regions and signal, no preference for like urban and rural and just keep those no preference. Um, and then signal where you want to signal. And so for me, the way I did it. You know, I think it's very dependent on everyone's application. Um, and I tried to connect with my co-med students just in the class to say like, hey, are there certain places that like multiple people are signaling or um, a lot of people are interested in just because, you know, there might be a program that you just signal just because not necessarily that you're interested or super passionate about going there. Um, and we ended up, kind of all going our own way which was fine um but i think that can help kind of classes as a whole i was like okay here are the kind of the top programs that i want and signaled about uh a third to two-thirds of my signals using those and then i was like okay here's ones where i either have a regional tie some close connection or something um that i can also do right yeah, I think it's a it's a great point and something I've also heard where like working with your classmates can be very helpful and um, one for away rotations too, which we we didn't necessarily touch on, but you know you don't want four people rotating at the same place, um, you know, because somebody's going to be at a disadvantage in that situation. You kind of want to be like the student or the one to two students from your school. Um, you know, at that place. And I'm sure it's similar for signaling too. So it's nice to kind of hear from you that you got together with some of your classmates and kind of work together to kind of maximize everybody else's, everybody's situation. Um, and then with, with signaling. Um, so I know, you know, personally that you absolutely crushed the application. You don't have to, <laughs> you know, toot your horn with like absolutely bodying it. Like I can toot, I can toot your horn for you, Pat, because you're just a goat, nah, but man. you absolutely bodied everything. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in terms of like the interviews that you got versus the signals that you did, was there any like, were you only getting interviews at signals? Did you get a few interviews at places that you didn't signal? How did that work out for you? Yeah. So for me, I think and kind of what people saw is like the vast majority of places that you signal, if you got an interview, it was likely that you signaled them. And that was the same for me. There were a few programs that I got interviews from that I didn't signal, but those were ones where I had a huge personal connection, not necessarily like I knew someone there, but that like, or fam for family, um, that like lived in the area. Um, but yeah, so for me, it was basically those that I signaled. Gotcha. And one thing, like even backing up outside of the signaling process, just backing up to the application, I just remember another piece of advice that you gave me was when you were going through like your personal statements, when you're actually applying, 
Um, and you did something very like, I think that I personally wouldn't have thought to do until you mentioned it, but I'd love for you to share just like how you approached writing your personal statement specifically for some of those schools that you were planning on signaling. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think moving forward, one of the biggest things that people need to know is like you get 30 schools to show that you're really interested. And so for me, I structured my personal statement to say, hey, I'm incredibly interested in this program for this reason. So all of my 30 programs that I signaled, I wrote one to two sentences specifically about why that program is the one that I want to go to and why I signaled them. And, you know, it's a very small detail, but I think given that it was the first year of signaling, um, it actually helped me out a lot. So I had four places specifically bring up my personal statement and like um, why I mentioned and like what I mentioned about it. And so, you know, moving forward, if everyone's doing that, you know, that may not, but I think given that it's still in its infancy in signaling, I think that is one way to really demonstrate kind of your passion for that place and why you're interested in it. Yeah. I, I think that that was like super, super smart move. Um, you know, obviously it takes a little bit more time and effort to be able to kind of individually craft personal statements. And it doesn't, from, from what I think you, I remember you telling me, you know, the majority of your personal statement was pretty standard for what it was. And then just a few sentences, maybe at the end or something to highlight, you know, why you're interested in them and why you and them would fit. Um, I think that that would be like, you know very important. And one thing that I've been hearing too from, from PDs and, and things is, you know, I think traditionally people could potentially just skim personal statements. Um, but now they're almost being forced to kind of take a more holistic approach to reading applications and things like that. And, you know, um, and I think because of that personal statements actually carry more weight than maybe they did beforehand, where if you didn't get a step score, I'm not going to read your personal statement or with clerkship grades or, or whatnot. But I think in general, personal statements do matter more than they did. Um, so that, right. I think my last question is, you know, since you've got all of these interviews and, you know, I'm sure it can be kind of difficult to, to manage, especially because from what my understanding is most of the interviews were actually in person this past year. Um, so how did you really go about either choosing what interviews to take and actually making these interviews? Was it something where you had to decline interviews? Was it something where you were going like one day to the next day and like on flights? And if that's the case, like how did you kind of stay prepared for your interviews? <laughs> yeah, so I was very, very fortunate and I'm very grateful to have gotten, you know, the interviews that I did. It definitely thanks to all the work my mentors helped um, put in for me. And I think the thing for us, about a third of my interviews were in person. And so it was beneficial because there was still a significant chunk that were virtual. And so you could do, you know, virtual interviews on back-to-back -back days. Um, but moving forward, as things likely go in person, I think it will make people be very, um, deliberate about which ones they choose. And so I think understanding like going into it, what are the ones that you're most interested in, have a high, like a huge connection to, um, or are drawn to for whatever reason. And so for me, one of the things is I had to turn down co like 
the West Coast interviews for East Coast ones because, you know, talking with my wife, I was like, okay, what would be best for our family? And for her, she had East Coast relatives and had connections there. So we said, okay, if it if there's competing, we'll pick pick East Coast. Um, and then ultimately, like it comes down to finances too. You're just like, you know what? I want to go there, but I just I can't. And so I was very um, focused on being present at the interviews that I selected. Um, and I think that's important um, too because, you know, as previous research showed, I think it's like 12 to get a 95% chance of matching into ortho. Obviously that data is a little old. Um, but my focus was like, okay, after, you know, 13 or X, whatever interviews set kind of setting a threshold of being like, okay, after X amount, you know, I don't necessarily need any more. Um, and I also knew people who, kind of were hurt by the interview kind of dichotomy of the people that got like, you know, 20, 30 plus interviews. And then those got one or two. And so for me, I was like, you know, I am happy with just fewer interviews. So here are the ones that I picked. Right. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned something too, with like, you kind of give a shout out to some of your mentors, you know, for helping you. I'm sure they provided tons of guidance and, um, you know, support in various ways. But I was wondering if you had any uh, mentors who like specifically reached out to certain programs on your behalf via email or calling people or, and if they did do that, how did you go about like requesting that? Did you request that? Did they offer that? How does that work? Because I think that that's something that I'm hearing more of, but I also know that it can be something that may, most people may not feel comfortable broaching. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. And I think it's really evolving. So the advice that I took and used was I saved my quote unquote phone calls from my inner, from my mentors to the program that I wanted to, that I interviewed at and wanted to go to like my top program. And mm -hmm. so I just had, you know, my two or X, I had two inter, uh, mentors reach out to the place that I interviewed at. But now that signaling has kind of changed the game, I think there were people this year who called mentors and asked mentors ahead of the application um, reviewal process to say, hey, you really need to take this person and give them an interview. And so I don't know if that shift will now be to towards kind of earlier in the process. The only thing, the reason that I think that may not be the case though, is then you've got your interview, your mentor calling like five, six, seven schools on your behalf saying, well, he really wants to go here. He really wants to go here. And so for me, I just thought, let's just see kind of how the interview process turns out. Um, and then I'll save my interview callers. A caveat to that is I know someone who was on a bunch of wait lists for programs that is when they called their mentor and had their mentor call on their behalf of saying, Hey, you know, if a spot comes up off the wait list, here's a great um, applicant that you really need to interview. So I do know people kind of doing that as well. Okay. That makes sense. That's good. I, I honestly didn't even know that there was like a wait list kind of process as well. Similar to like getting into med school that there's like a, 
is it like an email that you get that says that you've been, you know, you're put on yep. the wait list at this school. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yep. Exactly. That makes sense. And um, I'm on the like admission committee for the medical school here. And I also know that like, you know, it's either after interviews or when students get on the wait list that we usually will get additional emails from usually just the students, but just, you know, that's usually those, the two scenarios that we get where it's just like, here's an update or right. here's, you know, another thing to show my interest in the program or whatever, like letter of intent or interest or whatever. Um, so that makes sense that those are right. kind of the two scenarios that are probably most appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, all of that was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, I just want to open up the floor for you now, Pat, any kind of like final words you've shared so much wisdom. Um, you know, I'm definitely going to be running this back. I hope the listeners <laughs> run this back like two, three times because they're going to absolutely like crush the application season if they do. But um, any kind of final words that you want to leave with with our listeners? Uh, sure. I think kind of two things kind of big picture is, and I realized this kind of during COVID is remember that you're so much more of a person than just the one in the hospital. And like, there's tons of people that look to you and love you. And the reason that I say this is because, you know, sub I season is tough. Like you are grinding, you aren't necessarily getting like positive feedback all of the time like you are, but you're just like, dang, like I'm just working towards match day. I'm working towards interview day. Um, and just keeping the big picture, like, you know, it may be a tough day in the OR and the hospital, but like, you know, there's people that out there that really want to see you because you can get into this bubble and just like kind of lose sight of that. Um, and then kind of the second one is really enjoy the ride. And the reason that I say this is like, Again, you get so focused on becoming this like subspecialized ortho surgeon in this X city and this thing, and you can really get disheartened by the whole process if you look at it like that. But like, I loved sub I season because I just met so many amazing friends. Like, funny enough, me and Victoria, the person you just interviewed, like mm -hmm. became amazing friends. We like rotated basically at three places the same months together, so we got super close. And then Gabby, the person that you're interviewing next, like met him through the interview cycle. So like you just meet so many people that are like great people and it's really fun to see them kind of at different um, places. Yeah, th that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it is crazy. It's like, I guess, you know, you hear all the time that ortho is a small world and, you know, people know each other and that kind of thing. But like, I guess that you're like the experiences that you're describing is kind of how, you know, you rotate with these people. You spent a, in Victoria's case, you know, almost three months with her, um, you know, now you guys are really close and um, you know, that's, that's awesome to hear. And I think if you stay present in those moments, you'll be able to enjoy that ride. Like, like you said, you did mention something before I do let you go. I do have to ask you having twins. Uh, you, you, you mentioned, you know, knowing who you are outside of the hospital, right? Like in, 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 in not losing sight of that. Uh, like you're a husband, you're a dad of twins. Uh, how do you, I know, you know, you're in your fourth year of medical school. Hopefully you're relatively chilling right now. I hope you're not doing too much. I hope you're not too busy. <laughs> I know you're doing research, like you said, but how do you plan on approaching residency now um, with the kiddos? Is there a, cause I, I have a kid too. So this is more of like a personal question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, this year was tough, not just for sub eyes, but just like starting a family, like it's just such a different experience and like you just have to change your expectations. And so I became much more deliberate 
with the time that I had of being like, you know, I'm going to give all the time that I have when I'm with my kids to them. But you have to realize like they aren't necessarily a textbook or a test. Like it's very easy to be like, okay, if I get super efficient, I'm going to get them down in half an hour and they're going to go to sleep and then I can study. And I felt like those were the nights like before I was flying out on an interview or something or like had a virtual interview the next day, they were up all night and I'm just like, oh my God, they won't go to bed. And you just have to realize like, you know, you're their parent, not a med student. And so being Mm -hmm. present is important, but I'm learning every day, man. It's, (laughs) it's fun, but it's a grind. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's awesome. I know you're an absolutely phenomenal father. Um, And like you said, it's a, it's a process every day we're learning and we're figuring out and doing our best, but I know that you're doing a great job with those kids, just as you are with being a husband and a med student and everything else you have going on. But I really, really appreciate your time, Pat. This was absolutely incredible. Hey, much love, man. It's seriously appreciated. So grateful to be on the show and, you know, talk shop. It's been, it's been amazing. I hope that y'all enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Patrick England as much as I did. Northwestern definitely has a good one. I just want to send one last reminder to write and review the podcast if you can. It helps us out a bunch. Thanks and see you next week.